Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the fields of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. In recording this episode with Robert Dale Rogers, I caught the mushroom bug. We only scratched the surface of the lessons with plants and mushrooms that he has to offer. And truth be told, I got so excited about our mushroom discussion that we did not have a chance to talk plant medicine at all. That will have to be addressed in another episode. Robert Rogers has been an herbalist for over 45 years and is a professional member of the American Herbalist Guild. He earned a Bachelor of Science from the University of Alberta, where he is presently an assistant clinical professor in family medicine. He is also an adjunct professor in graduate studies at York University in Toronto. He presently teaches plant and mushroom medicine, aromatherapy, and flower essences in the Earth Spirit Medicine faculty at the Northern Star College in Edmonton, Alberta. Robert is also a faculty member of the School of Western Herbal Medicine at Pacific Rim College. Robert is the author of 52 books on medicinal plants and fungi of the boreal forest, including The Fungal Pharmacy, A Cree Healer and His Medicine Bundle, Mushroom Essences, and Herbal Allies that documents Robert's journey with plant medicine. Robert is one of nine renowned instructors in Pacific Rim College's online herbal programs the Home Herbalist Program, and the Community Herbalist Certificate. Releasing in February and March 2020, respectively, they might just be the best online herbal medicine programs available anywhere. Studio filmed, professionally edited, and expert curated, the programs lead students into the incredible and seemingly magical world of herbal medicine, just as Robert does in this podcast. Learn more about these two amazing programs at PacificRimCollege.online. I hope this fascinating episode with Robert Rogers spores your interest in the world of mushroom medicine. Robert Rogers, welcome to the show. It's great to have you in the studio. Thank you very much. You just finished a workshop for Pacific Rim College. Can you tell us a bit about that? We explored the whole interesting uh, realm of medicinal mushrooms, uh, did a classroom on Saturday and today we went out into the woods and and uh, found all kinds of species and uh, I think the students were delighted to actually see some of the uh, specimens that we have been talking about and see them in real life. Yeah, it was fun. Mm-hmm. Mushrooms are a real hot topic lately. How, uh, how did you get into the field of mushrooms? I got into mushrooms because I had a clinical practice from 1984 to 2002 and um, I was fascinated that particular uh, reishi and turkey tail and some others were very useful for uh, work with oncology. And so my cancer patients who were undergoing chemo or radiation uh, were looking for something to keep their immune systems, their white blood cells uh, a- adequate while they're going through that process. And I found them very helpful. And then I started looking around and realized that there's a whole swack of mushrooms uh, in North America that I didn't know anything about, and uh, wrote a little book, a little monograph, 32 pages, and then in 2006, I printed uh, The Fungal Pharmacy 
which was a self-published, uh, limited the audience a bit, said uh, fungal pharmacy, medicinal mushrooms of Western Canada. Mm-hmm. Not a very good uh, commercial uh, entrepreneur. And, uh, and then in 2011, it was reprinted by uh, North Atlantic uh, as a complete guide to medicinal mushrooms and lichens of North America. And uh, that, that particular book, even though I'm not a mushroom expert, has allowed me to travel the world, uh, English-speaking world at least, to talk about the uh, amazing world of medicinal mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Now, you say you're not a mushroom expert, and that surprises me, because if you're not an expert, I'm curious who is. Well, professional mycologists um, who get PhDs uh, generally occupy chairs or positions at universities, and they spend most of their time uh, re uh, identifying mushrooms or renaming them based on DNA, things of that nature. But most of the real discoveries of mushrooms in the world are done by amateurs. So I would say I'm an amateur mycologist mm-hmm. in the sense that I'm not professionally trained, but I have a very specific interest in mushrooms and the various compounds in them that are used for human health. Okay. And what is your professional training in? My professional training is the clinical herbalist. I've been an herbalist for 46 years. I actually, when I began, there was no great herbal colleges like uh, Pacific Rim. So I basically was self-study initially with uh, two indigenous Cree healers in northern Alberta. Then I did a little stint with Norma Myers at Alert Bay here in British Columbia. And then I did studies in California, England, Spain, and two-year apprentice in uh, 82 to 84 in Peru. And then in 84, I started my clinic in Edmonton um, as a clinical herbalist. Okay. Now, you've been teaching for Pacific Rim College for probably about a decade now. I would say, yeah. You're also on the faculty at the University of Alberta, is that correct? Yeah, I'm an assistant professor in family medicine in the Department of Medicine and Dentistry, yeah. Okay. And you are not a doctor, is that correct? I am not. I don't have a PhD and I don't have an MD. I'm Mm -hmm. strictly, I have a Bachelor of Science in Botany from my alma mater, the U of A, but I don't have any other advanced degree. So is that a rather unique appointment then to be in that position? Totally. Hmm. Uh, It was, uh, it came about because um, the former chair of the department uh, really wanted me to work with several indigenous uh, uh, healers who are who had been brought into the faculty to help assist uh, indigenous uh, students through the process of becoming MDs, and uh, so I was uh, a, uh, a helpful ally in that process, and that's how they asked me to be part of the department. Okay, and in addition to that, you also have your own college, is that correct? We do, yeah. My wife and a colleague, uh, we have the the Northern Star College uh, in Edmonton. And uh, there's a number of programs run, but my wife and I focus on a three-year diploma called Earth Spirit Medicine, which encompasses uh, herbal medicine, uh, aromatherapy, flower and mushroom essences, et cetera, over a three-year program. And uh, they can take it as either a diploma or certificate program. How long have you been doing that? This is year 14. Okay. So this came about, basically, I, after I stopped clinical practice in 2002, uh, I, stud, I, I, I 
developed that herbal program from Grant McEwen University, an intro herbal, uh, and taught that for a number of years. And then that program, just as we were developing our own college, um, that program was discontinued. So it kind of worked out very favorably. Perfect. Yeah. So 46 years of herbal medicine as a practitioner, uh, it's now a relatively common thing, at least in, in this part of the world, in Western Canada. But I can imagine that four decades ago, you must have been pretty far out on the extreme. There weren't, there weren't a lot of us. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I remember back in the early days, I, <clears throat> I, I know Chanchal Cabrera, that's mm-hmm. up the coast uh, from those days, and Terry Willard. Mm-hmm. And that was it for Western Canada. Wow. Uh, what sparked your interest and passion in herbal medicine? I would say my own health issues. <clears throat> when I was six years old, uh, my uncle came back from the Korean War, had tuberculosis, active lived with us. I contracted it. The rest of the family seemed immune or certainly weren't infected. And uh, I ended up being treated with heavy-duty antibiotics and uh, lost part of my hair. Uh, The antibiotics they were giving me were 10 times stronger than they should have been. You know, I'd, I'd wake up at night with my whole body just inflamed and painful. And, uh, and so I remember that episode. I remember that. And uh, <clears throat> this is an interesting story. That summer, when I turned seven, I was living in Halifax. Um, and uh, I would take my mom's mason jars and fill them with water. I don't know why I did this. But uh, then I went around the neighborhood and I was picking flowers and flower petals, putting them in the water, putting them out in the sun, sealing them up at night, putting them on their porch, taking them out the next day, get some more solar, and uh, drinking the water. And then when I was 22, I took a course with James Green, who's a friend as well from those days, and he introduced me to the Bach flower remedies. And I realized then that at seven years old, I was making my own flower remedies Hmm. and treating myself without knowing that's what I was doing. And so... They often say that a seven-year-old is, is, there, is, is related to their connection to God, whatever that means to people. But I realized that I had a real passion to, to heal myself and then in turn uh, work with other people. Carl Jung has a saying, uh, only the wounded physician heals, and they can only heal to the extent they've healed themselves. Right. Hmm. And... How did you recover from tuberculosis? Was it through the medicines or was it through your own doing? I don't know, but uh, everything's still okay. I do have uh, the bacillus that are encapsulated in my lungs and I'm Mm -hmm. extremely careful not to use certain homeopathics that may actually open up those ensealed kind of capsules like Cilicia or something like mm-hmm. that. So I have to be a little careful, but actually, if I had to say my respiratory system is the weak link in my body and I am careful to pay attention to that, and reishi happens to be one of the great lung, lung tonics, so reishi is one of our regulars in our household, both mycelium stirred into uh, smoothies and then reishi as a tincture uh, when I feel I'm coming 
down with either seasonal allergies or or my cold and flu tends to want to precipitate into a bronchitis. Okay. Yeah. Do you've written 52 books now, is that correct? Yeah, I'm pretty well done, I think. You're pretty well done. Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> Are those all on the topics of mushrooms and herbal medicine? I only have two books on mushrooms. Okay. The Fungal Pharmacy you mentioned, and then uh, Mushroom Essences, which I put out two years ago, but that took me 26 years to write that book. Oh, wow. So, uh, and then the other books are mostly on boreal forest uh, plants. Uh, a couple of later le- ones lately, uh, uh, the 12 Pathways of Health is more of a synthesis that I've been working on for a number of years of integrating, you know, things like astrology, music, color, um, sound, um, homeopathy, uh, chemotherapy, uh, essential oils, flower essences, mushroom essences, etc., all into a 12 zodiac kind of a situation and that was a lot of fun but that took me like it was probably took me longer to integrate it all on paper than writing it actually Hmm. so that was my second last book and uh and then my very last one was very way off topic it was uh based on the uh ancient anglo-saxon ninth century book lacnunga uh which was um I, the title of it is called uh, uh, Worms, Warts, and Leeches. Uh, and basically, it's the nine sacred herbs that were in that book, or at least my interpretation of what those nine are. There's only one copy of this manuscript in London. And uh, it was interesting to do. Um, of course, leeches, we think of leeches today as being, you know, leeches that are put on for bloodletting. Mm-hmm. But actually, leeches are the old name for. Um, medieval doctors. Okay. Warts, of course, is the term for plants. And worms, of course, uh, uh, has many connotations, and certainly earthworms are a great medicine, mm-hmm. at least out of the tri- Chinese tradition. Uh, but worms actually, in 9th century Anglo-Saxon, those were actually uh, diseases, either internal worms or external worms. That was the term that was used for diseases. Okay. So I called it worms, warts, and leeches. I would imagine you have a lot of stories. <laughs> some I can tell. Some I'll have to wait till after I die. Well, let's 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 look at let's go into some of those that you can tell. I'll narrow it down a bit because I'm sure the scope is quite massive. But let's uh, let's go to mushrooms. Uh, can you share with us any of your incredible either healing or spiritual experiences that you've you've had with mushrooms? Uh, yeah. Either with sure. you or your patients. Yeah. Well, you know, um, there is a, um, a move afoot uh, based on a lot of the recent work that's done in Johns Hopkins. Uh, there's now at least eight or nine studies looking at the psilocypes for uh, everything from O obsessive compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, various addictions, including alcohol, nicotine, opiates, uh, depression, anxiety, etc. Okay. You said psilocybes? Yeah, psilocybin mushrooms. Okay. Yeah. Uh, 
Psilocybe is the genus name. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I remember my very first experience with those. Uh, I was 20. I hitchhiked out with a friend to Vancouver. We slept overnight in our sleeping bags at the P&E waiting for Rolling Stones tickets. That's how old I am. <laughs> and uh, missed those. Went down to Gastown, <clears throat> had, a, had a beer, and the guy was coming around with, with magic mushrooms that he had picked in this big plastic slimy bag. And so we bought them, took them up to Seashelt, cooked them into a big omelet, and I ate them. And I always tell people, that's my first experience with the, with the magic mushroom. And um, about nine in the morning, we had the omelet. And then about two in the afternoon, I kind of wandered out. And I'd wandered out to the ocean, sitting on some driftwood logs and looking out and just like, wow, I love the ocean. And I really do. I, I was born in Prince Edward Island, but I've been in Edmonton for the last 50 years. Um, and at the end of the day, I had made this carving that was a stick about three feet long, um, you know, about an, an inch and a half in diameter. And I had taken my knife out of my pocket. I had a little Swiss army I used to carry in those days. And I had carved both ends of it and all intertwined it. And, and two years later, I was looking in a book and I had carved a Tahitian wedding stick. Hmm. Like somewheres across the Pacific. Really? This came into me and it channeled through and I carved this stick that was identical. And I saw it two wow. years later in a book. And so I thought these are pretty amazing mushrooms. Wow. And were you, were you, when you were doing that, did you feel that this inspiration was coming to you from somewhere beyond you? How did that come about? Um, that's an interesting question. I I wasn't really thinking that way I think I was just really in the moment of what I was doing and I wasn't I wasn't feeling um out of my body but I was feeling like incredibly grateful I I remember at that time feeling like I felt at peace and uh that's what some people are finding with studies with philosophies today and it's interesting that in Colorado in May they're having a referendum on legalizing them Really? So things are moving ahead with regards to to looking at some natural substances that were shut down for a long period of time because they were considered a drug. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now science is saying, whoa, we should re-examine these. And uh, I always say it's a good thing when science, when it's a good thing when politics don't get in the way of good science. Mm-hmm. Have you had any incredible therapeutic outcomes and intentionally sought after using the mushrooms? Absolutely. Uh, I would have uh, a significantly higher rate of, uh, of both uh, survival, but also quick recovery of immune-compromised clients uh, when I use some of the medicinal mushrooms, particularly with my cancer patients. Very significant. Can you give any elaboration on that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I had, well, I'll give you one example that uh, really sticks in my mind. I had a, a fellow who had a tumor roughly the size of a hardball, you know, wow. uh, in one of his lungs. Like a, a baseball? Like a small baseball, not a softball, but a smaller one. Right. So about that size. Wow. And, uh, in, his, in his lung? In his lung. Wow. And they told him it was inoperable. And uh he came to, he sought me out and uh, I put him on a protocol that included m- mushrooms and uh, 
seven months later, he went back to his oncologist. They took another x-ray and it was completely gone. Wow. And his oncologist said, they must have mis- misdiagnosed. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, what must not have? There must not have been something there before, it's because how could how that? that how could that happen? <laughs> right. Do you remember what mushrooms you used? Yeah, reishi and turkey tail. Okay. Those are the ones that I knew well in those days. Uh, those were the two most well studied mushrooms. I think in fungal pharmacy, I've identified about 260 mushrooms that have some benefit, mm-hmm. and there's more all the time. So, and did the patient just eat them? Is that the well in those days? Well, in those days, there really weren't the plethora of uh, products that we have today. Mm-hmm. So, in those days, they were basically uh, extracts or tinctures. Okay, and uh, uh, I remember for reishi in the early days, I had to have people go down to. A herbalist in Chinatown and buy reishi and they had to make their own decoctions because there was nothing available. Hmm. So uh, things have changed a lot. Mm-hmm. And now the mushroom industry, of course, uh, out there is a plethora of products that are all called mo- mushroom products, but some are from the fruiting body, which is the traditional uh, medicine. And then a lot of them are made from what they call uh, mycelium on grain, where they, they, feed mycelium to oats or rice or wheat or something the mycelium eats up the grain and just before they would be starved and running out of food and produce fruiting bodies they take that and they process that into a a powder that they sell to consumers Hmm. can you break down the difference between mycelium and mushrooms yes absolutely and i think it's important for people who are shopping for product that they distinguish because very often on the bottle it'll say such and such mushroom Mm -hmm. extract mushroom so there's a great debate in the industry and uh, uh, what you need to be doing is looking at the side of the label and and most of the companies uh, whether they believe that mycelium are better or fruiting body are better they will label accordingly so the percentage, like creating a mycelial product is very, very cost effective because that can develop very quickly. Fruiting bodies can take three, four, six times longer, taking up space in a factory to produce fruit, fruiting bodies. And so fruiting bodies are a lot more expensive. And that is the mushroom? That's the actual fruiting body of a mushroom. The mycelium is the living organism that when it starts to get starved or when it needs to reproduce because it's running out of food, it will produce the fruiting body, which is the reproductive part of the organism. And so that's the, what we see above the ground. That's exactly The fruiting right. body. That's known right. Known as the mushroom. Right. But the mycelium that's in the wood or in the tree or in the, the, the uh, substrate you know, package in the factory, that's the mycelium. Mm-hmm. And is the medicine more potent from the mycelium than from the fruiting body? Well, it depends who you talk to. Okay. <laughs> uh, there's controversy either way. Uh, there are certainly uh, ingredients in mycelium that are not in the fruiting body that have some great medicinal value. And there's lots of studies out on mycelium. But the fruiting bodies are the ones that have generally been 
uh, utilized in medicine, traditional Chinese for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are pros and cons to both. I actually like using both. Okay. I, I use a mycelium product because they're sweeter, because they're, they're full of starches and sugars. I use those in my smoothies. Mm -hmm. And then I use my fruiting body tinctures when I really feel I need that extra attention to my immune system. Okay. Now, a mycelial... Uh, the mycelium's underground, since, is that correct? Or, or in the in, tree. In the tree. Yeah. Will each type of mycelium produce only one type of fruiting body? Just humor me with this. Very <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's the sexual organ of okay. that particular species. Yeah. Okay. And are the different types of mycelium, are they interwoven in, in different areas? Are they... No, they never interact. In never. fact, um, it's very occasionally but very rarely if a if a mushroom takes over a particular tree mm -hmm. it really makes great effort to own that tree and not allow other fungi to to join in because that's its food source okay and what about in the ground how close can different types of mycelium oh they reside? all enter if you look out in your yard right now there's mycelium all through that soil um there's an interesting study done in switzerland a fellow took a hectare of land and he kind of quadranted it off. And then for 20 years, he identified all the mushrooms showing up mm -hmm. on that one hectare. Okay. And every year it was different. So how does that happen? If the mycelium is very territorial, you said they don't interweave? In trees. In trees. In the ground they do. In the ground, they live quite well because in the ground, they're, they're seeking food sources, of course, always. But they'll only fruit either in the, on ground or in the tree when the conditions are perfect for successful reproduction. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of effort for the organism to produce a fruit uh, because they want to produce spores to continue their, the life of their uh, species. Mm-hmm but they'll only do it if things are perfect. And so um, trees, for example, generally are able to source water from wherever. But some mushrooms that are more land-based mycelium, if they have a droughty summer, they're not going to reproduce. They're just going to lie there, they're going to survive, and they're going to wait for their perfect time. How long can they be in that dormant state? Hundreds of years. Wow. And does it matter how severe the conditions get? Will they continue to survive, or is there a limit? Um, there probably is a limit. We uh, we don't really know that much about the spores they produce. Uh, can live for thousands and thousands and thousands of years underground in trees. Well, the spore or airborne. Yeah, yeah, airborne. I mean, they found uh, spores at thirty thousand feet in the air in jet streams. Really. Uh, I'll tell you one story. I live in Alberta, which yeah. is pretty, you know, it's not mushroom country. And uh, one year we had a, uh, a foray, sort of like the one I went to today with the students. And uh, there was this very unusual pink, really pinkish with little hairs on it, mushroom somebody brought in. And it was a swamp uh, in northern Alberta, um, very microclimate-y. The way it was positioned, it was really facing south, and it just got intensely warm in there. And it, it was all—it was lying there, and everybody goes, "What is that?" And a colleague of mine, uh, Roland True, who works at Athabasca University, he lived and studied mycology in Papua New Guinea for a couple of years. 
And he's walking along the aisle and he comes up to this and he goes, what is that doing here? That's where it's native to. It was native to Papua New Guinea. And here it is, got on a jet stream, landed in a swamp in northern Alberta and created mycelium and fruit it. Like, how about that? (laughs) (laughs) So is it everywhere? They're everywhere. Mushrooms are everywhere. And how deep in the ground? So if you take a shovel full of earth, are you going to be disturbing the mycelial network? Oh, yeah. Okay. Does it repair easily from that? Absolutely. Okay. So if you are here on a farm, if we're uh, hand tilling the land to plant a garden, are we interfering irreparably with the mycelium or it's just temporarily? No. The only way you would really interfere is if you took your total field turned it over, mm-hmm. and heavily fungicided it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That would kill them all. Yeah. And that's generally modern agriculture has been one of the uh, real detriments to, the, to not only the health of fungi, but of other microorganisms in the soil that are super important for a ecologically correct organic basis for producing our food and other things. Uh, it's one of the big problems. Mm. So if it's everywhere, and you said it only fruits when the conditions are perfect, I'm, I'm presuming the conditions are rarely perfect. Otherwise, we would see mushroom fruiting bodies everywhere. Yeah, it, it depends where you live. I mean, okay. right, uh, British Columbia down into Washington, Oregon, that is prime mushroom country of North America. Yeah. But they're not like blackberry briars that just consume landscapes if you let them go. Oh, no, no, no. No. So what, what keeps them from being that uh, voracious in their, their growth? And well, their if we didn't have humans on the planet, they would be everywhere. I okay. mean, the reality is every time you do a development, you build a road, you dam something, uh, you are interfering with the ability of the mycelium to really run. I mean, they really run everywhere. Mm. Um, one of the things that's happening is that... Um, uh, Wild mushrooms, for example, for edible, for the, uh, you know, for people's palates in the high-end restaurants, uh, people are paying attention more. Uh, wild crafters should be being trained in how to ethically harvest so we don't destroy a very valuable resource before it's gone. Mm-hmm. You have to remember that there would be no trees on the planet without mycelium. Uh, they have a very unique relationship with trees, and it's people think that all of nature is kind of socialistic, but that's actually not true. In this case, it would be more of a capitalistic kind of a situation. The tree really needs nutrients and water. Mm-hmm. And the mycorrhizal, they, many of them have a uh, ecto or endo mycorrhizal relationship with the root hairs of trees. So it's so to the degree that they're actually intertwined and so the, the fungi, the, the mycelium, they know that the tree needs water and nutrients, and the mycelium can provide that, no problem. But what the mycelium need from the tree, because they can't photosynthesize, okay. they need sugar. And so there's a back and forth, and the mycelium will kind of go like, okay, give me some sugar, and then the tree will go, well, here's some water. I need water and nutrients. And it's kind of a back and forth. And in fact, they found that the, 
that the mycelium will hold out until the tree gives them the right amount of sugar or they won't give them any water. And is that the only way the tree can get water? Yeah. So does every tree have mycelium yeah. within it? Absolutely. Wow. Every You're plant. not taught that in school, are you? <laughs> I think at Pacific Rim College we are, but I yeah. haven't been a student there. But not in not in elementary. <laughs> right. Not in elementary. Yeah. Um, does every plant then have mycelium? Just about 95% of the planet. There's a few plants that um, don't, uh, like Shepardia uh, canadensis, buffalo berry, but they create um, uh, frankenia. They have these little bacterium nodules that that fix nitrogen and things like that for mm-hmm. them. So, But 95% of the plants on the plant wouldn't be here. In fact, there would be no plants except for way back, if you believe this, like say, go, let's go back four or 500 million years ago. Uh, cyanobacteria algae in the ocean, you know, they wanted, if they wanted to make it onto land, how are they going to do that? So there's these little globules of omega-3 fatty acids, which is why it's so good for us. Mm. And these little cyanobacteria that can photosynthesize, they needed a structure in order to protect them on land. Mm. And so that's how they form first primitive uh, relationships with lichens, like with, uh, mm-hmm. with uh, 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 mushroom, fungi, so they could come on the land. And then when they got on the land, then they started eating rocks, and the rocks then started to form into soil, and then the relationship, and then there were plants later. Hmm. So there would be no plants. So even though I have a degree in botany, hmm. when people talk to me how important trees are and whatever, I said, well, don't forget about the fungi. There wouldn't be any trees without them. Wow. There's so <laughs> many places I could go with this. Okay, you, see, you brought up the ocean. So every plant in the ocean has mycelium no okay no the um <clears throat> there are very few uh fungi in salt water okay uh however uh very recently one species was found in the amazon and another by near a, a dump in india a garbage dump in india they found now two fungi that can eat plastic we could get rid of the plastic on the planet here. Really? Now, whether we could have those fungi su- su- survive on the plastic islands that are in the Pacific, right. we don't know yet. But Because of the salt water. Exactly. But on land, they can degrade plastic incredibly quickly. And so they could save us that way as well. How did they manage, how did ocean plants manage to thrive without it if all land plants basically need the mycelium well we have in the ocean we have the seaweeds and we have other kinds of they've developed their own specific way of living okay and uh they they chose not to come on land okay so but everything originated in the oceans initially and what about freshwater freshwater is a different story Freshwater, um, different kettle of fish, isn't it? Well, it is. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's a, a little different story. But you know, the, we have freshwater cyanobacteria and algae as well, and uh, uh, there are some underwater freshwater mushrooms, satharellas, for example, uh, but not common. Mm-hmm. And would they be underneath the the base of the water source? Absolutely. 
and they're everywhere there. So underneath well, the very, lakes and the rivers and but there but there's very few of them. Why is that? They've chosen not to live there. I mean, it must be a harsh environment. Mm. Um, so most of the uh, fungi now there are about five thousand. Sorry, estimated five million species of fungi on the planet. Wow of which we've identified about 150,000, of which we've named about 10% of. So if we've only identified <laughs> 150,000, how do we know that the other 4.85 million are out there? We know they're out there. They're just not identified and they're not studied. Um, it's funny, the University of Alberta, it's very interesting. They have trouble having a professor of mycology on, on faculty, and they have two professors studying goldfish. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. The fungi are one of the major kingdoms of the world. When I was doing my science degree in 1970, there were two kingdoms on the planet, animals and plants. Mm -hmm. Not the that's, fungi. That's not, that's not that long ago. Right. Right. And so now, king, now kingdom fungi, the mm. fifth kingdom. Um, what are the other two? You know what? I knew you were going to ask that, so I shouldn't have said <laughs> the fifth kingdom. Slime molds have their own kingdom, by the way. You know slime, slime molds? Slime molds, okay. Yeah, there were this creature. We saw some today. They, they, they move like an animal, and then when they get to a certain spot, they, they pop up like a mushroom and sporulate and, and spread their spores. Huh. They're the most unusual. But like they're, some, not, they're not fungi. They're not. They get their own kingdom. Huh. Uh, fungi generally fruiting bodies don't move yeah but mycelium runs mycelium runs okay gosh i have so many questions in my head okay let's uh back to trees sure the mycelium in each tree is fairly territorial is it in any way parasitic to the tree absolutely 100 okay. percent of the uh uh, polypores generally that ones the ones that have poured surface on the bottom for their spores uh when they fruit uh, the mycelium in that tree is eating either they call them either brown rot or white rot mm. uh, sp uh, species depending on whether they're eating the cellulose or the lignin. okay and these are the two major structures of trees and they will eat all of those until that tree is gone oh this is confusing okay so the tree needs them to survive yeah but they also eat the tree that's uh, exactly right. Now, why would they attack their host? Uh, that's their source of food. And they can't do it symbiotically. They can't. Uh, well, some mushrooms are, don't work that way. For example, the psilocybes we were talking about mm. that grow on lawns, mm -hmm. they don't have a mycorrhizal uh, association with trees. Okay. But many do. And the ones that do, for example, all of the medicinal mushrooms like uh you know the ganodermas etc they shaga they eat the tree that is their host and will eventually kill that tree but during that time that the tree's living they the tree depends on that fungi wow. so it's really it sounds like a marriage <laughs> it you, kind of is you mentioned the term mycorrhizal what's that well, mycorrhizal is when the uh, the mycelium is creating a symbiosis with the root hairs of the tree, the really tiny root hairs coming okay. off the roots, and, okay. and they create a a relationship. And what I talked about before about the relationship of 
I'll give you water, you give me sugar. Okay. So when you see a fruiting body, a mushroom on a tree, is that a bad sign for the tree? Absolutely. So it indicates that the tree is rotting and the mushroom is using that as its perfect condition to fruit. The, the tree is on the way out. Now, that could be 20, 30, 40, 100 years. Mm-hmm. But it's, it suggests that the mycelium is fully in that tree and that hmm. it will be gone at some point. And, and get this, this is what's interesting, is uh, people who study, who are employed by forestry, they hate mushrooms. They think that they own those trees and that their mushrooms are killing their trees. Mm. That's how they think about it. Mm-hmm. That's not how nature is. They're thinking strictly about the profit motive. Right. If we didn't have my, if we didn't have mushrooms, uh, fungi degrading trees as they died, we would be thirty miles high in 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 debris on this planet. Nobody could live here. You couldn't walk around. So do the <laughs> mushrooms then act as kind of like the groundskeepers they clean things up as need be would the trees die on their own volition without the mice is that the main reason trees die from other than obviously physical trauma is it the mycelium that is determining their lifespan absolutely okay so we're looking out it's three four hundred year old douglas firs um what how are they that old what how how do some of these trees live to be a well, thousand be, plus years? Well, because they have an unlimited supply of nutrients and they don't have to shut down for the winter. So they really can gr- keep growing as long as they're fed the nutrients they need. Uh, the By the gr- mycelium? Yeah. And the mycelium that's mainly attached with Douglas fir is are the honey mushrooms, which are the biggest mushroom, biggest organism in the world. I don't know if you know, hmm. but down in Oregon... This there, is what Paul Stamets speaks of. The, 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 yeah, there the is honey mushroom. The honey mushroom. So that's the mycelium that's yeah. underground. That's huge. Thousands of years old. Twenty-two hundred acres is, I think, is the latest figure I've read. And that's one, one organism. organism. I know it's it's mind-boggling when you think about it. And are there other types of mycelium interwoven with that organism? With the uh, with the honey, mm-hmm. oh no! When they have a, a Douglas fir for themselves, that's what they. But what about it? Did you say twenty two hundred or twenty two thousand acres? Twenty two thousand hectares. Hectares. Wow. So about a hundred thousand acres. Would there be other mycelium interwoven with that, or is that? Oh, absolutely. Okay. There will be others in there because it wouldn't be exclusively a Douglas fir forest. Right. There will be birch here. There'll be spruce. There'll be hardwoods. And they will all have their own wow. mushrooms. So that... the, the type of tree that comes up, is that based on, in part, what's going on below the ground with the mycelium? Absolutely. Whew. So a Douglas fir needs the honey mushroom? Is that what you said? Well, the honey mushroom both supplies it nutrients, but it ultimately is its uh, executioner as well. Are uh, there other mycelium that could provide for the Douglas fir? Just as an example. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Some of this has been well studied. Uh, There's a a very wonderful study by a professor out of, I think she's out of Vancouver, UBC maybe. She did a study a few years ago and she was looking at, uh, you know, some of the ancient forests and the connections. And uh, um, 
one of the things that has been happening in forestry and why we have some problems as we've observed with forest fires the last few years, not the only reason, but some of the reasons, is that there are usually in the forest some trees called mother trees. Hmm. And these are usually the grand, huge trees in the region, in the area. And they kind of like are the, the maternalistic providers for that kind of ecosystem in their area. And they found that the relationship with fungus is such that if let's say the mother tree sees that a, a little sapling is kind of, you know, do, not doing well, let's say it's not getting the nutrients it needs, mm. it literally sends a message via the mycelial mat to send extra nutrition to that tree to support it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So we know so little. <laughs> How far can they do that? Without I don't I don't know distance wise, but it would be in their general community, right? Wow. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And hmm. <laughs> would these only be naturally occurring trees, like original old growth, or does this also happen when you plant a forest? Uh, that's a great question. The reason we have uh, problems with disease and fires, et cetera, I believe, is that we cut down, we clear cut, we get rid of the mother trees, and then we put little identical seedlings and monoculture forests mm -hmm. for, for, for profit, so they all grow at the same age at the same time, mm -hmm. and then we harvest all of those. Uh, we are not being respectful and we're not paying attention to the natural cycles of life, and therefore we're reaping some of the, the side effects of that kind of looking at forestry as a commodity. Right. So there are no mother trees then in that? Very few. And would it be one of the planted trees that would take the role of mother, or would it no, be? No, there wouldn't be because they're all the same age. They're all the same size. They're, all, they're growing at the same rate. If, if there had been one there 10 years earlier, would that... That would have helped. That would, by default, that becomes the mother of... Yeah, if uh, the cones from that tree, let's say, mm -hmm. fell and then those seedlings were the children, then there would be that relationship. So it has to be from the seedling of that tree. Yeah. Okay, so any a planted Douglas fir beside a, what is known as a mother Douglas fir would not be in the same network. Well, we don't know because they don't do that. They don't... They don't plant Douglas fir forests. They well, plant... not not commercially, but certainly, <laughs> like here we've planted trees. If we plant a Douglas fir beside one of these giants, is, is oh, they would take it on. It would take. It would be like an adopt. They'd adopt it. Adopt okay. a child. Yeah. Wow. So in the logging industry, there's actually not too far from here in a place called Port Renfrew. It's where we have some of our oldest growth trees on Vancouver Island. There's there's I believe the second largest Douglas fir in Canada called the Lonely Doug. And everything was clear cut for hundreds of acres around this massive, massive tree. And it was left standing. Is that, I mean, obviously it's beneficial for that tree and for us to see that, but is that going to be beneficial for the regrowth of the forest around that? It depends what they plant around it. Mm -hmm. If they actually took saplings, mm -hmm. if they actually took seeds from the cones of that tree. Yeah, which you know they'll never do. Probably not. And if they planted another species, then no? Does no. a mother only adopt of its own kind? Yeah. Whoa. Wow. 
<laughs> it's something to think about. And I well, think beyond that, it's and, mind-boggling. Yeah. And I think forestry has been somewhat remiss in not paying attention to the, the natural cycle. So how could the forestry industry improve? Uh, there's obviously how many hours thousands of ways, but in, <laughs> yeah. in regards to the mycelium and how, what, what could they do? Leave some of these giants standing or every yeah, so often? Uh, leave a lot more, do selective logging. I mean, I'll tell you a story. My grandfather, uh, I, I grew up in Nova Scotia. My grandfather worked at a, a mill down there. They used to cut barrels that would then fill the barrels full of uh, salt cod and, uh, herring, ship them down to the Caribbean, and then the Caribbean would bring back molasses and rum. And it was kind of a thing they did hmm. back in the day. And so my dad and my grandfather, he would go in the forests and he would mark trees that would be cut for making the staves for the barrels. Okay. And at one point in Nova Scotia, 95% of the timber was private woodlots. And people would go in with horse in the winter time, and they would pull, they would cut a selected tree at its prime, pull it out with horses, mm -hmm. and then they had a sustainable forest where they were selectively logging pieces at a time, and that went on for generations. Mm. Well, forestry believe they can't make money at that, mm. and so, so it's the root of all the problems. So if we were to leave behind some of these more mature trees and then plant the same type of tree around that, that would be yeah. a step in the right direction. And a mixed forest. Yes. Like you'll never see monoculture all Douglas fir. You're going to see a maple here. You're going yeah. to see a beech there, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Will a, I think I know the answer, but a mycelium organism, it will inhabit many trees. Is that... It can spread, obviously, this this massive uh, honey mushroom. Oh, yeah. It's and they actually are so big, you can see them. They call it the uh, bootstrap. Uh, it it looks like shoelaces, like it's that th that mycelium. Wide. Yeah, it's like up to a half inch wide, this big black stuff that's crawling all over the floor. How do we know How do we know the size of this one in Oregon? How, how are we certain that it's connected that whole... 22,000 They went around the whole sites and they tested it and they did DNA and they found their identity. Really? Like they biopsied all over and... Yeah. Whew. Yeah. It's not unusual. I mean, there's all incredible fungi out there. Like there's bioluminescent mm. mushrooms that glow in the dark. Why do they glow in the dark? Mm. They attract insects to is that take what's their on spores your, away. Is that what's on your shirt? Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. Is that what it looks like in the forest? Yeah. At night. Where do you find those? <laughs> well, there's some right here. There really? are some in, yeah, there's some in Eastern Canada. P uh, Pinellas uh, glows in the dark a, on a moonless night, new moon. You can see it definitely glowing. Wow. Uh, in the Amazon, they're all over the place. And uh, so. How long does the fruiting body survive? The fruiting body survives long enough to, to mature its spores that get carried off by insects or the wind to start another generation. And so uh, they could be as short as two days and they can be up there for up to months and months and months. Again, I have so many questions. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to streamline yeah. it. So harvesting the mushroom for medicine and or food, 
What's the most sustainable way to do that? I would say that uh, for some species, we should be staying away and uh, being very selective in the specimens we pick from the wild because we now have, with some exceptions, we have the ability to produce high-quality product for food and medicine in in uh, mushroom factories. Okay. We can duplicate that under pristine conditions. Would it have the same medicinal Absolutely. value? Absolutely. Really? Yeah, depending on the substrate that you use. And a substrate is the source of the cellulose, the food that the mycelium needs to eat. Yeah. Um, and for each mushroom, it's a little different and more ideal. Uh, there are huge numbers of organic mushroom farms popping up all over North America by really educated, excited, uh, uh, really passionate young people who want to create a source of food and medicine and create a lifestyle for themselves. And so there's little factories uh, for mushrooms all over, and they require organic substrate. They require straw or whatever, uh, a little factory that started up by Edmonton, they're using hemp herd that is left over from the the hemp industry, and they're growing their mushrooms on that. Is this indoor or outdoor? Indoor. Oh, it's all mostly indoor. So I mean, that fascinates me. How can we indoor create a biosystem that mimics the incredible diversity externally to feed the mushrooms what they need to develop the the same medicinal properties. How can they do it from just one one substrate? Um, Sorry, that was a very <laughs> long question. Well, if I get your yeah, if I get your question correctly, uh, people who really know what they're doing uh, will take from the wild a, a fruiting body, and then under sterile conditions, very you got to be super sterile. They'll take a little knife and they'll take a piece of that fruiting body, and they'll create a mycelium from that. Okay. And then that mycelium is what they use to grow X number of generations of commercial mushrooms from that, that are almost identical clones. But at a certain point, they can't only do that for so long and they have to go back to the original because it kind of, they weaken as they go. So the potency would taper off? Yeah. So then I'll go back to the question I asked earlier, can we create mushrooms in factories that have the same medicinal properties that are occurring naturally if there is that taper effect? Absolutely. Uh, as we're learning more, we, in fact, we're doing experiments. Uh, a good friend of mine, great mycologist in South Carolina, Trad Cotter, who's written one of the great books on organic mushroom production. Mm -hmm. uh, we're looking at uh, creating the ability to to grow different mushrooms on different medicinal herbal substrates to find out if we can find new molecules that probably are don't exist in naturally in naturally in the world that may not exist at all before and so that's kind of exciting work that the mushroom mushrooms will be encouraged to eat different things for example uh, oyster mushrooms which we saw lots of today they can be used to to microremediate uh, petroleum spills. Right. The oil sands. They can they be trained trained to eat cigarette butts. Really. So, w mushrooms are capable of so many things. 
my particular interest is how are they good for humans and and companion animals uh, for uh, maintaining optimal immune health. Mm. Yeah. Let's take a lion's mane, for example. Would every lion's mane mushroom have close to the same therapeutic potential? Yeah, all of the different species, there's about four or five, depending who you speak to, that have both water-soluble compounds and fatty acids in them that um, uh, appear to create, at least in some of the preliminary studies, uh, have contained brain neuron growth factor, which makes, which means that our brain nerves, neurons, grow faster. And so there's some, been some preliminary studies, and certainly with the onset of... Uh, increasing senile dementia towards Alzheimer's, uh, anything that can help us create neuroplasticity of the brain and create new brain cells that at least keeping up with the ones that are being killed off by uh, inflammation in the body uh, would be a good thing. (laughs) To say the least. Is it just a coincidence that lion's mane, the fruiting body, looks someone like somewhat like neural networks absolutely it's a coincidence it's uh or not because of course in herbal medicine there is the doctrine of signatures yes yeah i would say that that's not a coincidence Uh, although some of them some people take them a bit far the right the doctrine but but yeah that's what i was always intrigued with that i mean in fact the coralloides the heresium coralloides in alberta looks exactly like a two-lobe brain yeah and that's what it benefits just like walnuts right walnuts look like a brain yeah so if every fruiting body has similar therapeutic potential of the same type is that only because they are fruiting when the conditions are ideal are you talking about heresium now or Uh, any any mushroom of the same type of the same type because you said sorry and maybe like for lion's mane for example you i i asked about the therapeutic potential of any lion's mane for oh yeah body it's going to be similar is that because it only fruits when the conditions are optimal uh, it's because of the compounds that are water soluble that all of them contain and when they fruit those compounds are present and they appear to really uh increase brain neuron growth and now it's uh are they in the mycelium some people believe that the mycelium of lion's mane may also have that same benefit but there's no human trials to mm. prove that as as such and what about the mycelium that is what i called earlier dormant i don't know if that's the right term would that still have the same medicinal power some people believe that's true but it's not proven Okay. So all of the product out there that people are looking to take as a brain tonic yeah. at the present time is from fruiting bodies. Okay. Oh, yeah. Wow. Uh, okay, back to trees. One more. Well, I probably have more than one about trees. But when we actually see the fruiting bodies on trees, it indicates the tree is nearing its end, uh, I think you said. Uh, is there anything that we can do? Can we take those fruiting bodies off of the tree to help that tree? Or is that just the mycelium is so... Well, you know, cutting sexual organs off of a tree, I don't know. (laughs) I mean, that's basically what we do when we harvest medicine. It doesn't necessarily harm the tree and it doesn't help the tree. Okay. The... uh, 
it's just like picking your raspberries. Are you going to leave some of them out there? Probably not. Um, so I think the, the, the key here is that we have an overpopulated planet. And if everybody was out wildcrafting their own medicinal mushrooms, we would be creating a serious issue. Mm-hmm. And we don't want to do that. And so where you can cultivate and grow medicinal mushrooms in controlled settings, I think it's great. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the ones that they can't do is chaga. And chaga, which is on birch trees, is being widely over-harvested. And I am greatly concerned about mm-hmm. its uh, survival uh, simply based on the fact that people are over-harvesting it and overusing it. Why can it not be made in, to grow in factories? They've tried. Just the conditions the, the, can't... Well, the part that is used of the shaga is a sterile conch. Okay. It does not have the capability to reproduce. Okay. Now, having said that, when that shaga is on a tree... And after 20, 30 years, I mean, slowly killing the birch tree, the birch tree falls in the forest. The sterile conch, for a brief 24 to maybe 48 hours, little fruiting bodies that are microscopic appear. Hmm. And they will produce little spores that try to find another crack in a birch tree in that area to continue the life cycle. And it has to be a birch tree? Yeah. And a specific type of birch? Well, it can be any birch. White birch, paper birch. But the key to this is, if there's no sterile conch Hmm. falling in the forest to create little little fruiting bodies, there will be no more shaga. Because those little spores have to create, are created to create the next generation. And so when people harvest everything in the forest, which is going on at a rampant rate, then it's a problem. And how are they harvesting the chaga? Terribly. I think people are over-harvesting. I was sitting with my good friend uh, Bev in Whitehorse last summer, and this 4 by 4 truck went by, and it was piled to the gills with shaga, and then mounded up about four feet above the box with two big chainsaws sitting on top of that, probably $60,000 worth of shaga in this one truck. Are they cutting trees to get that? Yeah. And And they don't have to do that. They shouldn't cut the tree. What they can do is they can take a pry bar, pry off a good percentage, maybe up to even 80% of that sterile conch off the birch, it's on the exterior? It is. It's like a scab, on a black scab on the uh, birch. Okay. And if they harvest that and leave some, in two years they come back and it's grown That's out again. There. And they'd have a sustainable. But what do they do? They cut the tree down because it's easy. Then they hack it out with, this, with the chainsaw. Wow. And is that because it's also high up on the tree too? They're trying to access it all. Oh. Uh. Yeah, there, it's, out, it's out there. That's yeah. that's the dark side of things. Right. Hmm. Tell us another... Uh, let's go back into another journey, another mushroom journey. Do you have another story of, of someplace that a mushroom has taken you? Yeah. So 26 years ago... Um, 
1991. Let's go back to 99. Uh, uh, Sabina Pettit in uh, Victoria here um, held the second annual International Flower Essence Conference. And my wife and I came out and out at U of Vic. And uh, there was this fellow from Netherlands. And he came over with, he had six little flower essences that he had developed over time and one mushroom essence. And I said to myself, mushroom essence, what an interesting idea. And so over the next five or six years, I began to develop and create um, different mushroom essences uh, instead of flower essences, which are produced with uh, solar energy with sunlight right mm-hmm. like the bach remedies uh they were produced with lunar energy mm. because mushrooms are really a realm of the dark they love mm. the dark they live in the dark and i was thinking from my clinical practice i was thinking what are some mushrooms that address issues of of our shadow what do, what are some issues that address uh some of these deeper soul energetics that are associated with our traumas of early life, you know, where where there's a disconnect or there's a uh, dysfunction. So I did that. I developed a bunch of them. And and sometimes they worked and sometimes they didn't. I trialed them on myself. And then I had was very fortunate. I had a clinical practice. And when I helped people with their physical ailments, they were very pleased. And uh, so many of them who I also believed would benefit from flower essences or mushroom, I would ask occasionally to them, I'd say, would you be willing to take this mushroom essence for a lunar cycle, keep a dream journal and get back to me about your experience? And so they did. And so many of them reported back and some of them correlated with what my original thought were. And then as I got some feedback, I would then go, okay, maybe this mushroom essence is about this, and I'd trial it on other clients, to a point where I finally got some consensus about how the energetics of that mushroom uh, may help with some of these deep-seated soul-type issues. And so 26 years later, I I wrote a book. And uh, I approached my publisher, my editor in uh, Berkeley at uh, North Atlantic. I said, you know, Doug, I've got this uh, book on mushroom essences. And he says, oh, what's that? And so I explained it. He said, oh, he says, I don't know. He says, I'll I'll talk to my team. I said, okay, well, get back to me. So he talked to his team and he got back to me about a week later. He says, Robert, there's not a lot of interest. It's kind of a very esoteric kind of subject. And I said, yeah, I know, I know. But I said, but I put a lot of effort into this. And uh, he says, yeah. And so I said, I'll tell you what, it's Thursday. I said, on Monday, if you don't get back to me, I'm going to self-publish it. He says, yeah, fair enough. That weekend, Doug took his family. They went out to the Sierra Nevadas and they were hiking with as a family. And they came upon eight herbalists who were sitting in a circle making a flower essence. And so Doug, you know, kind of was watching them for a while. And then he, at a certain point, they were taking a break. So he walked up to them and he asked them what they were doing. And they told them and, and, uh, and Doug says to him, he says, well, what do you think, what would, what do you think about mushroom essences? 
And eight, all eight simultaneously turn to him and go, where do I get those? And on Monday, he came back to his office and wrote me and said, yeah, we'll print it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how that book got published. So. <laughs> <laughs> the universe is speaking for sure. Yeah. Of course, we've only just touched the surface of, of the mushroom topic. And as you've said, you've been a herbalist for 46 years. So I'm sure you have so many stories to share. Uh, I'm mindful of the time here, and I know I need to get you to the airport. Uh, so I would love to do another part of this at some point in time, if that's oh, that'd be fun. Right. And maybe sure. maybe it'll be multiple parts. I'm absolutely fascinated by this, and I think there's so many places we could go with it. And uh, I think so many people are interested in both the plant and and fungal world for for its healing properties, um, among other things. Where can our listeners learn more about you? Uh, you could go to my uh, my college site, uh, www.northernstarcollege.com. You can go to our home site. My wife and I have a site called selfhealdistributing.com. Uh, we have a line of flower essences from the prairie, essential oils, books. All our books are on there. And so you could peruse that. It's got a little online store you can order and whatever if you like. And uh, I've got, like you said, 52 books. And my wife has five that are really excellent. She does a lot of incredible work, Lori Zott Rogers, with uh, dream work with uh, young women and mythology and uh, uh, aromatherapy. She's an amazing woman. And and so together we've had... Uh, uh, the opportunity to really explore some of these worlds together. And I'm super thankful that I met her. I was almost 40 when I met her. Mm. And it's been a blessed and uh, people can keep in touch that way. Okay, sounds good. Before we wrap up, is there one more amazing story that you, you want to share? A plant or or Yeah, mushroom? I'll, tell you, I'll tell you a great story. So one yeah. of my early Cree healers uh, was Rose Auger, who... I feel very blessed to have known. She was a Cree healer, Drift Powell Reserve, First Nation, right, lived right beside me. And but anyway, so one year, uh, I'd started uh, with Terry Anderson in 1979, something called the North Country Fair. It's kind of a pagan solar summer solstice, you know, not everybody dances and drinks and mm -hmm. carries on all weekend for around the solstice time. And so we started that many years ago. And then one year, unfortunately, many of our, some of our community were, were killed in a traffic accident and nobody wanted to do the next year's to continue. And I think there was a year five or something. It's, it just had its 40th anniversary. Wow. Yeah. And it was fantastic. I mean, standing right upstage there in Buffy St. Marie, uh, singing her heart out to all of her um, indigenous elders that we brought in from all the different First Nations to sit there. Like it was like a magical moment, I tell you. But anyways, year five, I took decided to take on the cooking because nobody else would do it. Mm. Uh, it had to happen. <clears throat> and I, I, I went to light one of the propane stoves and we hadn't checked before and the oven burner was out and it blew me right across the floor. It blew me probably Whoa. 10 feet across the room, smacked me against the wall, and I slumped down, stunned, and burned. 
And luckily I had glasses on, uh, but, you know, I had a little plastic um, a thing on my wrist that was the w- entrance for the weekend. It was what, like they use a water slide, you yeah. know, those things. Yeah. And it was burnt right into my flesh. Wow. And so I'm stunned and I'm just, you know, and so people said, came up and they put me outside and they sat me at a, at a picnic table and somebody went and told Rose, who is an amazing healer. And she, I could see her coming, sort of. And my brother was there. My brother, the non-believer, mm. my great brother, he lives down east now, but he, he's kind of a more rational brain than I am. Uh, he, uh, he watched Rose kind of trundling towards me across the field. And he says, and this, he says, and he says, I swear this is how it went. She came up to me and she put her hands about a foot away from my body and he said he watched her as she took the flames off my body and flung them about 30 feet into the air. And she kept doing that for about 10 minutes, taking literally, he saw fire coming from her fingers, flinging flames into the air. The next morning when I woke up, I had not one burn on my body. Whoa. Wow, were you actually on fire while she was doing this? Or? I felt on fire. Was it? But, I mean, I was burnt. You were burnt. And, well, I, <laughs> okay. It's unexplainable. Wow. Yeah. That's a good story, Dan. Isn't had, it? Has she done this before? How did she know to do this? I don't think she did. No, she passed a few years ago. She was a, she was a, she was a true healer. Yeah. And the very next day, no scars. No, nothing. Nothing. Amazing. Well... Thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. And let's, uh, let's do this again sometime. I, Absolutely. I, I'm really fascinated by all of this. So thank you again. And I look forward to the next edition. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Robert Rogers. Robert regularly offers plant and mushroom medicine workshops at the Victoria, BC campus of Pacific Rim College. His next workshop, Rejuvenate Your Brain Naturally, on March 7th and 8th, is sold out, just as most of his workshops do. Sign up for Pacific Rim College's newsletter to stay informed about Robert's upcoming workshops, as well as those from other globally recognized experts. In the meantime, join Robert and eight other renowned instructors in the online herbal programs, the Home Herbalist Program, and the Community Herbalist Certificate, launching in February and March 2020, respectively, at PacificRimCollege.online. Until next time, Take your truffle pig for a stroll and see what bounty awaits.